Can you just tell me in what aisle is um, tomato paste? I took a trip to my local grocery store to check out the price of tomato paste. Right here? Thanks so much. There's a statistic I've heard about food production and consumption in Africa, which speaks to the lack of agri-processing capabilities across the continent. The stat is that Nigeria is one of the largest producers of tomatoes in West Africa, and also one of the largest importers of tomato paste. These agro-processing deficiencies are a problem. It's a problem that has caught the attention of even the richest man on the continent, Aliko Dangote, whose company has invested tens of millions of dollars to build a tomato processing plant in northern Nigeria. But the plant isn't running profitably due to lack of local supply, due large in part to the inefficiencies and inconsistencies of smallholder farmer yields. So back to the grocery store. One kilogram of loose tomatoes in this store were 21 rand 99, or around $1.40. Then a 100 gram sachet of tomato paste was 11.99, or about 75 cents in dollars terms. So the equivalent price of one kilogram of tomato paste would be 120 rand, or around $7.75, about 5.5 times more expensive than the same volume of raw tomatoes. As we've talked about in recent episodes, the cost of food is disproportionately high in African markets. Another reason why is because so much of it is imported. And when there is a lack of domestic processing, not only is imported food more expensive, but imported processed food is more expensive too. So in this episode, let's dig into the agriculture value chain. Before we start, we'd like to thank MFS Africa, for their sponsorship of this season of The Flip. MFS Africa has been backing the growth and development of the ecosystem by investing in startups through its Frontiers Fund. One such investee is the Ugandan agri-tech company Easy Agreek. And I had the opportunity to speak with the company's co-founder and CEO, William Leyinda, about the variety of challenges smallholder farmers face and the role the company plays in digitizing and increasing the accessibility of agriculture services for smallholder farmers in Uganda. I would summarize that farmers have biggest challenges in the four main pillars. Access to the genuine and affordable inputs, then also they're challenged to access extension services. They're also challenged to access profitable and consistent markets and also challenged to access capital, enough capital for them to make sure that they do their production and they're able to scale their production. Currently, the ratio of the extension worker to, to farmers in Uganda it's one to 15,000. That means that each extension worker has to reach out 15,000 farmers. That's insane. Now, with this limitation, that means that farmers lack access to information to extension services. On the other side, even when they start the production or when they're in the real production cycle, they find it very hard for them to get genuine inputs at a little bit more affordable prices. So you're talking about Uganda, where the counterfeit of inputs counterfeit of almost everything is high. Even those who are able to access those inputs, they find it very hard for them to get the right know-how on how to use those particular inputs. They have a challenge of making sure that they're able to sell to transparent, consistent, and profitable markets. So they end up always making sure that they sell to middlemen, which puts them in a situation which is non-profitable. Lastly, it's access to finance. When you start it from the people who give capital to the farmers is that they find farmers operating in the dark. Their production is not visible or is not transparent to the people who provide capital. 
So you're talking about a farmer who just buys the inputs, he doesn't keep any record, doesn't do anything around which can stress his production. And it's always also very hard for them to keep these records. We'll hear a bit more from William on how Easy Agree helps solve these problems for smallholder farmers later in the show. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. Back in episodes four and five of this season on logistics and B2B commerce, we talked about a major problem consumers have in African markets. The cost of goods and food are disproportionately higher for African consumers, with consumers in some markets paying more than 50% of their income on food alone. Logistics plays a major role, as does retail fragmentation and the inefficiencies along the supply chain. And when talking about food in particular, there's another important factor we'll explore in this episode, farming and the efficiencies of production and processing along the agriculture value chain. The problem starts, as we've talked about previously, with smallholder farmers. We lose about 25% of our sales because we cannot get uh, materials to sell, so we don't have stock. That's Afiong Williams. She's the founder and CEO of Real Fruit. And Real Fruit's vision is really to be the largest end-to-end fruit processing company based out of Nigeria, selling a range of interesting, healthy dried fruit snacks for the Nigerian market and the world. The beginning of an agri-processing chain starts with raw materials. Dangote is having a problem with their tomato paste processing plant because of the fragmented nature of sourcing raw materials from smallholder farmers across the country. It's a problem real fruit has as well. I think with most value chains in Nigeria, we have this chicken and egg problem regarding the reliability of raw materials for processing, which makes processing quite unviable. And what then happens is that people import processed goods to supplement that gap. So you have, for instance, in my value chain, a lot of fruit being grown and rotting, but it's not the right quality, right consistency for a large-scale processor to purchase regularly. So, for instance, fruit juice uh, manufacturers, instead of depending on the you know instability of the raw material, will import juice concentrate to make their finished products. So that just becomes a trap, a circular trap where there's no offtakers for raw materials. So you know there's no investment in bettering the quality of raw materials. In real fruit circumstance, it means in the first case, importing the fruit it needs. My business is not in the farming of fruit or any other commodity, and we can't get it reliably and consistently. So we have to find alternates, which is usually um, supported by importing. So, for example, biscuit makers who use fruit products in their biscuits or baking or, you know, who use it as inputs for cereals, etc., all are importing, especially when you look at the macroeconomics, you know, if you foresee that a devaluation is coming and you look at the difficulty with even border closures and those kinds of things that increase the cost of goods and making the port congested, we do have a case to be producing locally and being competitive against imports. This has real fruit thinking about and planning for building across the value chain. We have inventory problems, right? 
And that speaks to a reason why we should scale up and get to the point where we can sell more and make sure that we're closing all these gaps around inventory. Our goal is to actually play in all aspects of the value chain. And you come in wanting to sell dried fruits to buyers across the world. You don't want to necessarily get into farming, but to survive and to defend your business, you have to do it. You have to operate in different aspects of the value chain. And we've done the market end. We're in processing and scaling that up. And eventually we'll get into farming to secure raw material for our growth. But we do that, you know, plan. We don't just, you know, think that we can play across the value chain and be successful. I think it's extremely risky and it's also a very time consuming and you just open yourself up to a lot more risk. So when processors are struggling to procure raw materials, it compels investment at the farmer level of the value chain. Let's explore how that looks in another category, palm oil. My name is Kenna and Zoe. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Relief. Relief is involved in the production and processing of palm oil, which is an interesting category to explore. 50% of the products in a supermarket have some amount of palm oil in them. It's a $60 billion global industry, and it can only be grown within a few degrees of the equator making it a crop that is particularly well-suited for Nigeria, given its geography. And yet... When you look at Nigerian smallholder yields per hectare, they are, in Nigeria, they are like the worst in the world, effectively. For any major palm oil producing country in the world, they are the worst. The macroeconomic view is that the country has far more demand than it does supply of vegetable oil, about 60% more demand. And it's expensive in particular because of the inefficient production and processing by smallholder farmers. Here's how it works. So a farmer climbs a palm tree, cuts down what's called an FFB, which is a full fruit bunch. And it has like hundreds of little like fruits inside of it. So think of it like a like a grapevine, but like a lot more condensed and and less like vine in between the, the grapes. So from there, they cut open the full fruit bunch and they remove the little fruitlets from the bunch that kind of holds them all together. They then squeeze the juice out of the fruit, essentially, which is red palm oil. So red palm oil is used in a lot of local dishes in Nigeria. So the red oil that smallholders produce could ideally be used for industrial purposes or more uh, consumer purposes. So the industrial side would look like, you know, refining that red oil, bleaching it in color so it looks yellow, and including it in like a Milky Way bar. And then the more consumer-focused side is to basically just like strain that red oil with a little sieve and then sell it to your friend in like a jerry can. Smallholders see the extraction of the red palm oil as the business that they're in. Like 90% plus of their revenue comes from extracting the red palm oil. But that other 10% of revenue for smallholders today comes from the nut of the fruit. Throughout that process, we saw how farmers would process the kernels. We saw a lot of farmers using rocks to basically crack open the nut. Now, if you deshell that nut, there's a kernel that's inside as well. And that kernel can also be crushed into vegetable oil. And so when we saw people using rocks to deshell these nuts to get access to the kernel, it was kind of a eureka moment for us because the buyers were very strict about the quality of the kernels that they would receive. They didn't want the kernels to be washed with water. They wanted to make sure that the percentage of shell that came along with the kernels was below a certain percentage. And so what we saw is that a lot of buyers would either reject your product or discount the pricing that you thought that you were going to make 
if your quality wasn't on point with these commodities. So our point of intervention is basically doing the nut deshelling from the farmer. So we buy the nut, deshell into the kernel, then we crush the kernel into palm kernel oil, and then sell palm kernel oil to large, fast-moving consumer good brands or vegetable oil refineries that use it for like soaps and detergents. So what does investing at the level of smallholder farmer look like in this context? So what we do is we buy the nuts from the farmers. And what we've also introduced is nut financing. So we'll finance the farmers so that they can go harvest more palm fruit. So they'll hire more people to harvest for them so that fruit isn't rotting on the tree, or they'll buy fruit from their friends. And then they'll process that fruit into the red oil, which, like I said before, is where they get the money from. And then the byproduct of producing that red oil is the nuts. And so they repay our loans with the nuts, right? And so there's an opportunity to make more value for both the farmer and relief by basically advancing these smallholder farmers with more capital so that they're able to process more and have more working capital, essentially. So they can produce more red oil for themselves, which is where a lot of their value comes from. And then we also end up with more nuts, which we then process. Now, Relief is able to extract greater value from the nuts they purchase as they've developed hardware to deshell the palm nuts, no matter the quality of the raw material inputs. And in a market with a supply deficit, the more raw materials Relief can get, the more they can deshell and the more they can sell. And as Relief's deshelling technology is undoubtedly more efficient than smallholder farmers' rock cracking method, it's the company's objective to demonstrate what that means for smallholder farmers in terms of upside. If the farmer sits down and spends more time cracking open those nuts and sells perfect quality kernels, they will get paid more than if they sell me the nuts. And that makes sense, right? Like there's a cost for value addition. But the mindset that we are really trying to reorient farmers and rural communities in general around is to shift from a margin mentality to a volume mentality. So a margin mentality is, okay, I created five widgets. How do I get paid $5 of profit per widget? A volume mentality is I produced 500 widgets. How do I get a dollar of profit from each of them? And so our focus and our intervention is really around using financing as a catalytic means to help smallholders increase their volume today. So the future is really in increasing productivity, not in paying the the highest prices. And the goal ultimately is to help smallholder farmers scale even further. The role that companies like Relief want to play is to help smallholder farmers get on that path to increase productivity. And it starts with a reorientation around this margin mentality into more of a volume mentality. So that starts with the financing. And then it leads into better processing yields on the red oil side of things. As we identify great farmers and farming communities to work with, the second stage of intervention with capital is to provide better processing technology. So the processing technology that smallholders use to extract the red oil today, there's stuff on the market that can be purchased for like around $10,000 that can increase their red oil yields by up to 35%. And so if you add that 35% to like that 90% of value that they're already doing today, like you're looking at a significant increase in income, like in between 20 and 30%. And then the third step is to invest in better plantation management, if you will, or to make sure that the trees are outputting as much as they possibly can. But that takes time to orient people's minds and hearts and and labor to. And it's not something that can be done in just one day. And so 
you need to be a more integrated player in the value chain in order to help smallholders become more productive in a way that's like a, a win-win scenario. And so it's a kind of an exciting path to take with these smallholders and with this technology from solution that kind of focuses on the nut cracking and then moves into better oil palm productivity in the end, which then decreases the cost of food. Let's take a step back for a moment to talk about markets. We're exploring this topic in the context of high food prices in African markets. And for relief, they're focused on the domestic market in Nigeria. As it relates to Nigeria, it makes sense to just focus on the domestic market. So the Nigerian government has banned the importation of vegetable oil to spur along this like domestic economy, right? And the government doesn't want other countries who are further along in the process of working with this crop to make it difficult to stand up, you know, a domestic industry that can employ people and such. Now, you can export vegetable oil if you'd like, but the price of vegetable oil in Nigeria is more expensive than it is on the export market. And that's because in a global market, Nigeria is competing with other major vegetable oil producing countries like Malaysia, which has very efficient production and greater volumes and therefore lower costs. It underscores the opportunity to develop efficient processing capabilities in terms of servicing not only a domestic market, and reducing costs of food in domestic markets accordingly, but also in potentially having the opportunity to sell to markets with higher purchasing power. It's an opportunity Real Fruit is trying to capture. To be honest, it's much easier for us to scale to Europe and America, especially the U.S. is the market that we're going to be focusing quite heavily on. And that's because, you know, it's just easier to trade with these countries. Not just that the markets are bigger, it's much easier for us to sell into Europe and get you know, large distributors buying in large volumes, then those markets are much more attractive. It goes without saying that farmers in Africa may prefer to sell into Europe or the US or Asia because they can command higher prices. But they can command higher prices only for higher quality and higher quality at scale. There's always a market for better quality fruits or food. That's Jacobus Els the co-founder and managing director of Revolut Systems in South Africa, who we're going to hear more from in a minute on precision farming. If somebody wants something on the other side of the planet and they can't grow it there, they are willing to pay for it to bring it over. So let's use an apple as a good example. A high-quality apple that's going out of South Africa to the UK being sold at X amount of pounds. You know, really, it's pounds. So that's times 20 rand versus locally. That buyer, that if it being Costco or whatever, the big markets in the UK or in America or in the USA, you know, they want a solid supply of fruits. So if you can be a, a company with enough farms saying that even in my worst year, I will still be able to supply you with this amount of fruits, then those deals start going through and that your fruit starts moving across the planet. And I think that really, that just shows why, you know, this economy of scale and farming really is such an important thing because they can promise these produce and they can get these international deals and they can make money out of agriculture in South Africa. So the growth of agriculture industries also relies on the improvement of quality and economies of scale. That's something that precision farming helps with, which we'll talk about more just after the break. But first, here's another word from our sponsor, MFS Africa. Earlier in the show, we heard from MFS Africa investee William Luyinda on some of the problems smallholder farmers face in Uganda. He talked of four challenges and points of intervention, access to genuine and affordable farming inputs, access to extension and information services, access to markets for offtake, and access to capital. Here's how they're working to solve all of those problems through Easy Agreek. 
Easybrick is a mobile app. Also, what we have done is that we have created a third-party network. So farmers who don't have access to smartphones, they're able to go to this Easybrick agent and they're able to access these particular services. We have created a module which is able to disseminate this extension information in form of infographic, video, images, and even in form of text to make sure that this awareness and farmers can get this kind of information at the palm of their hands to make sure that they are really empowered. So farmers are able to map their gardens using GPS technology so that they know their actual exact acreage so that they leave guesswork. Let's say they want to do tomatoes, they are unspected production. We understand that minimal of these farmers, a few of them really understand their unit cost of production. Then Easier Greek is able to estimate for them to say, hey, you want to do tomatoes on 2.5 acres, so it will cost you this much. And probably this is how much yield or this how much income you'll be able to get. Then for us, what we do is that we have created partnerships with these input suppliers and supply them to the farmer. At the end of the production, what we have done is that we have partnered with different off-takers or different buyers. So what happens is that off-takers on easier brick, they easily digitally make payments to the farmers and also trace their produce from their farmers. Now, every payment which is done to the farmer, we take it in the farmer's season ledger or his production ledger for that particular season and record it as income. At the end of the season, we want to be able to give the farmer the visibility of this is how much we projected. This is how much you really have used. This is how much has been uh, your cost of production. And this is how much has been your total income plus your yield out of your farm. Now, in this way, with the use of technology, off-takers are empowered to have more visibility on the farmer's production, but also farmers are empowered on the other side. So that's the kind of value which Greek is providing to the smallholder farmers currently. From the beginning of the season until the end of the season. Before the break, we heard from Relief's Ikena Nzewi about the company's incremental approach to interventions with smallholder farmers across the palm oil value chain. The third step, he said, is to invest in better plantation management. And then the third step is to invest in better plantation management, if you will, or to make sure that the trees are, are outputting as much as they possibly can. To make sure that trees are outputting as much as they can, that's where precision agriculture plays a role. But to see what that looks like on the continent today, we need to go to South Africa. Here's Jacobus again, whose company Revolut Systems builds precision agriculture software for commercial farmers in South Africa. We try to digitize the growing environment of crops. We work with what is called spatial data, spatial analytics, working with technologies that fall under the remote sensing concept. So we look at any data that can be put on a map that reflects something about plants' growing environment, plants' performance, be it its leaves or the, the vegetative growth, be it the fruit growth, and try and use measurements that we can put on top of a map. And then the other interesting part is the, the, the way that we get this data through the remote sensing technologies. And what remote sensing means in a nutshell is really it's, it's measuring something without touching it. So Revolut uses these frontier technologies to help farmers make data-driven decisions about where they should use specific types of fertilizers, for example, or how much fertilizer they should use, where they might need to install drains in certain parts of the farm, and so on. All of which helps to maximize the productivity of a farm. 
and to increase the quality of the crops grown on the farm as well. I'm talking more about using every square inch of your farm to its most productive level. And this way, it's one of the best tools we really have to work against this problem that we have, which is running out of space, having more mouths to feed, and growing better crops for every single part that we've really invested in growing food on. That is really, I think that's the most important part of the work that we are doing, is optimizing growing environments. The challenge and opportunity in a market like South Africa is quite different from a market like Kenya, where route to market is less certain. In South Africa, where both the export and domestic value chains are more defined, and the retail environment is less fragmented, and where there is always a market for high-quality food, maximizing the productivity of the farm means more revenue for the farm, without concerns about post-harvest waste. But precision farming tools help increase the quality of fruits first and foremost, which will result in less waste. And its tools can also help further by helping farmers predict how much fruit they're going to harvest, so they can make logistics and storage plans accordingly. Here's how one of Revolut's products helps with that. Where it came from, it was actually from industry telling us they've got this massive issue, not planning well, not knowing what fruit's going to be coming in. This is something even farmers would admit. We are not good at estimating how much fruit's going to come off our trees. And I'm talking about 30% off, you know, 40% off sometimes in worst cases. Now this arrives at the pack store and, you know, just the logistical nightmare that ensues from there for the people having to sell it, the people that having to transport it, people having to store it. You know, if you're working with 100,000 tons, that's a lot of tons that needs to be moved around the planet and be stored and, you know, all of that. So it's still a lot of, a lot of cash and a lot of logistical problems. So it's got a little screen. You can see the, the images that, it's, that the cameras are seeing and you can see the little boxes where it's already marked the fruit. As you're driving, you can see it marking the fruit, counting it. And when you're done driving up and down your orchards and it's counting all the fruits, the data automatically goes to the platform. So then we can start managing also with precision fertilizers, you know, using these fruit variation maps to put down different amount of, of that. But it's all about the logistics. It's about the fact now we've got this accurate map of variation. It's not a, a total count. It just shows them where is more fruit, where is less. And they can go and do two counts and it extrapolates across the entire block and they've got a, a good yield estimate. And when there's a good yield estimate, Farmers and export companies can plan accordingly to maximize profits even further. Because the price of commodities is also a function of time. If one type of fruit is harvested at the same time, a glut of supply means decreased prices. But if fruits are harvested first and reach a market first, or are stored or transported to the global north during their winter to satisfy their full-year demand for seasonal products, that farmer is going to achieve even higher profitability. There's always a market for better quality fruits or food. The best position you could be in is being the first one, let's say you're the first country in the southern hemisphere to get your grapes ripe, your, your table grapes. Then you can charge a lot of money for it. You know, there's a massive demand. You're first on the markets, the fresh grapes or the new season. There is going to be, for that exporter, that's going to be his goal, is being that first one out for that cultivar, for that type of grape. And as the season progresses and more and more of them become available, your price drops and the need drops. And speaking to Jacobus about precision agriculture, I realized the objective is to make farming look more like manufacturing. In a global market in which demand continues to increase, that there is so much variability or unknowns in output is problematic, especially when compared to manufactured goods, where manufacturers are in full control of how much they can produce. When farmers put seeds in the ground, they need to know how much it will yield them. So perhaps farming should look more like manufacturing. One of the first times we were on what 
we call in South Africa a mega boer. Get the English for that. A mega farmer, you can say. So you start driving on this farm. And as far, there's table grapes on each side of you. And as far as your eye can see, this road is carrying on. And there's table grapes on the left and right hand side of you. This is hectares upon hectares, kilometers and kilometers of road. There is mining trucks driving around busy with, you know, working on creating new blocks there at the back. There's huge equipment moving left, right and center. It, it's literally a massive factory without a roof. You know, highly planned, highly executed. And what precision agriculture is allowing us to do is take this factory where we've got these blocks of inputs and outputs, but very bad measurement tools of how much is going in and out. So with precision agriculture, we can monitor every single part and not just this block and actually, you know, work those inputs and outputs much more effectively and much more streamlined and then monitor it much better. Now, as I sat down with the Flips B-Mike Shio Folowio for a retrospective conversation, I had in my head that African markets need more commercial farming. But what does that mean? Does it mean that smallholder farmers will inevitably become employees of commercial farms? Is that realistic, given the degree of smallholder farmers across the continent? Is more commercial farming even the right premise, considering the status quo? I was reminded of a newsletter edition I wrote in September, the Flipnotes number 72, which I'll link to in the show notes, about our use of the term informal, informal retail, informal merchants, the informal economy. I made the argument that the use of the term informal comes with all of these parochial assumptions about these merchants. And I'm afraid that I may have made the same mistake when talking about smallholder farmers. So that is what Shio and I talked about as we reflected on this episode and this topic. This episode kind of led me down a path of believing that smallholder farmers shouldn't exist. And then the question is just, what is the incremental path to like inevitable commercialization? I didn't get that from this episode, really. You didn't get that we need to move towards more commercial farming? Mm -mm. Like, if the problem, you know, in processing, if the problem with fragmented retail starts from the fact that you can't go to one single source or one source large enough or a series of sources large enough to provide the supply that is needed, either to satisfy demand at retail or to satisfy demand in the processing space, it just seems like there needs to be consolidation at the farmer level. Why? Well, if Dangote's tomato processing plant can't operate profitably because they don't have enough inputs, how does that problem get solved? By, by scaling up farming. I don't know why you think scaling up farming. There's only one way to scale up farming. You could also make farming more efficient. It doesn't necessarily scale. Right, that's what precision agriculture is. But there's, it seems like there's some commercial requisites for that. What? I hate this term. This term is also weird, precision agriculture. Rather, I know what it means in the context of the episode, but it's a weird term to make like a thing. I'm not making it a thing. You keep making it a thing. It's it's a thing. It's I think, a term. I think you just you just like the like the term. No, it's the the name of it's people. Yeah, call it's the name of a, a technique, right? Mm -hmm. but, but it's like it's suggesting that normal agriculture is not precision. Or rather, the way you keep talking about it is like the only way to be precise in agriculture is with precision agriculture. And I don't think that's necessarily true. So I get what you're saying. Farmers practice precision agriculture. We're just talking about using technological tools to further enable that 
act that activity. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. But don't you agree that smallholder farming is quite imprecise? Yeah. From what we've heard, it seems like that's the case. Yeah. Right. So then I guess there's levels. There's, I think the crux of the episode is in order to reduce food prices further, one thing that needs to happen is domestic production. The reason why domestic production can't happen is because of variability in supply. The reason why there's variability in supply is because of the prevalence of smallholder farmers. The reason why there's a prevalence of smallholder farmers to go back to a prior episode is because it's the least risky way to satisfy fragmented market demand. That's pretty linear. Mm. I think there's a big jump. From? From the need for more supply to smallholder farmers suck, let's commercialize. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's a very big jump. <laughs> it's a very extremely large jump that seems kind of um, a convenient jump. All right, so I guess there is something to be said about how, by the way, a smallholder farmer is anyone who has less than 100 hectares. So a 99-hectare farmer who's using some commercial and precision agriculture tools is probably a significant improvement from the two-hectare farmer who is cracking palm kernel nuts with a rock. Yeah. I mean, for instance, in the relief example, tell me how that means smallholder farmers should not exist. Um, no, it doesn't. I think it just means moving smallholder farmers from something that they are today. Like, obviously, there's a wide range of variability in, in the definition of smallholder farmer, right? So we just want them to move them to the commercial end of the spectrum. I mean, not really. You actually just want them to make sure that all the trees don't have nuts that get rotten or whatever, the fruits that gets rotten. That's actually the outcome that you're aiming for. And there's lots of ways to get to that outcome. So I don't know where we've gotten this idea that the only way to get there is... Well, I, guess, I guess that's what I'm saying is that is towards the commercial end of the spectrum, just higher output, greater efficiency, greater use of tools where available. All of that is just further along the commercial end of the spectrum. I don't know what you mean when you say the commercial spectrum. I don't know what the commercial spectrum is. Well, what are the characteristics of a commercial farm? High efficiency output, use of tools. What are you talking about? What's the thing of a farm? It's like you're into the, like the precision agriculture thing again. Like, what is the point of a non-commercial? Like, what are you saying? If you're selling your shit, you're a fucking commercial farm. That's what like commercial <sighs> means. Like, what is the commercial so I, spectrum? That's actually, shit? that's very interesting because you know how I wrote that thing like a couple of months ago saying that we shouldn't call it the informal market. Yeah, it's just the market. <laughs> because we're like treating informal merchants with like a lack of respect by calling them informal and like having this these like assumptions about who they are and what they do and you know this weird power dynamic. Like I realize I'm doing the same thing with smallholder farmers. Mm. So the question is not actually about whether smallholder farmers should exist or not. It's just about how do you improve any farmer's efficiency and output. Yes, that's more of a reasonable conversation. And it's not a smallholder farmer thing. It's not a commercial farmer thing. It's every farmer thing. And then the thing really is like everyone has an opportunity to and a need to improve efficiency. It's just that the how is different depending on who we're talking about and what stage of farm they are working at. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's important nuances in the, in the types of farm and the size of farm and things like that. And like, what's the, again, what's the value chain? Some value chains might be more appropriate for commercial farming to be the things and others, maybe not so much. But this weird question of like, should they exist? I don't, I don't know how we got there, to be honest. That's it for this episode of The Flip. Now, we've got a few more episodes of this season yet to go, but instead of publishing them over the upcoming weeks in December, we're going to hold back and publish them in January. So this episode will be the last in 2021. If you need your fix until then, we'd love for you to explore our past seasons and episodes of the show, which are available on your favorite podcast app. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter, The Flip Notes, which we'll still be sending out every Sunday. You can subscribe on our website, theflip.africa. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you in January. Thank you.